The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. In our last episode, we looked at a cutting satire by Ms. Edith Wharton writing in 1916, her long short story, Shingu, which mocked a ladies' luncheon club and its snobby members as they welcomed a famous writer named Osric Dane. If you haven't listened to that episode, you are welcome to do so, or if you'd rather read the story in print, that's just as well. It's called Shingu, spelled with an X. Or if you want to stay here and listen, that's probably without either reading the story or listening to it first, that's probably fine too. We're going to ask a tough question. Does Edith Wharton hate you <laughs> or hate us? And although that sounds like we're trying to read the mind of a ghost and maybe conjure her up with a seance, well, we don't need to do that. Ms. Wharton left behind some clues in the form of the story, Shingu, and even more directly in an essay she wrote called The Vice of Reading, where she set forth some principles for readers who were worthy and readers who, in her words, became, quote, a danger to the body of letters, end quote. To read is not a virtue, she announces, but to read well is an art. Well, where does that leave you and me, dear listener, and I presume fellow reader? Are we the kind of reader whom she favored or the kind of reader she abhorred? Are we among the ascending saints, the misrobies of the world, or are we descending into reader hell, condemned like the Mrs. Leverett and Glyde and Plinth and Ballinger and Van Vluck. I'll use Edith Wharton's essay, The Vice of Reading, to answer that question for myself and let you in on enough secrets so that you, you too can be your own best judge. Does Edith Wharton hate us? Let's find out today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Does Edith Wharton hate us <laughs> as readers? That is, I don't want to be the lady, one of those ladies at the luncheon. Well, it's a good thing, I suppose. Although I suspect, let's let's talk about the Naomi question, which I've named after a college friend of mine. Maybe I've mentioned this before, but it's been years since I've done so. So here we go. We were on a trip in Italy. Maybe all we were all there as part of a junior year abroad and, and chatting away as college kids often do, talking about the meaning of the universe and everything and everyone in it, especially ourselves. And the question arose, if you could come back in time what period would you return to? What year and what location? I always think about London in the 60s or maybe Paris or New York in the 20s, 1920s, that is. I have a few faves. But Naomi answered first, and she 
set the conversation on a different path. She said, well, you know what, just knowing that I'm a woman and looking back at the different periods throughout history and the way women were treated, I don't think I could choose any time but today. The conditions in the past would always be worse for me, and I wouldn't want to give up what I have now. And her friend Megan said, oh, you really think that's true? I don't know about that. I mean, what about Catherine the Great? And Naomi just stared at her and said, Oh, you, 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 you think you're coming back as a queen? I still think about that whenever I do these little thought experiments. I'm not coming back as a queen or a king or even a prince or even a wealthy person. I'll be one of the botched and bungled all the way down. So, would Edith Wharton have hated me in some ways? She probably would not have given me much thought. I am not of her ilk. I'm not in her circle. I'm not one of the ladies who lunch or one of their servants or one of their invited guests. I don't have estates anywhere. I'm probably more or less invisible to her. Or if she does notice me, it would be to regard me as a pain. But as a reader, aha, well, there I come onto her radar her reader radar, or as I'm told they say in Australia, Rida Rida. There she is. I told you I couldn't do this. Ah, seemed like a good idea to our intern script writer at the time. Rida Rida. Rida There, as a reader... Edith Wharton has time for me. She cares about how, <laughs> how I'm writing and reading. Okay, here we go. She cares about how I am as a reader. That's clear. She has strong opinions about how to read, how not to read, and what those consequences are. And since I am a reader, I am included in her ambit, whether she likes it or not. So let's dispense with one thing first. She does not care what I read. She's not talking about reading schlock and saying, look at these fools who hoover up silly fiction while my masterpieces gather dust. She says, hey, readers of silly fiction are not the problem here. It must be understood at the outset. She writes that in the matter of reading, the real offenders are not those who restrict themselves to recognized trash. There is little harm in the self-confessed devourer of foolish fiction. He who feasts upon the novel of the day does not seriously impede the development of literature. Okay, fair enough. So it's not about what we read, but how. If some of you were wondering if you might be in Ms. Wharton's crosshairs for reading romance novels or spy novels or detective novels or other guilty pleasures, have no fear. That's kind of a safe harbor. She's really not attacking readers. She's defending literature. But before we get into her defense, let's revisit our Kafka book. We're running through the book, Is That Kafka? with great randomness, asking our Google number generator to point us toward one of the 99 little tidbits presented by Kafka biographer Reiner Stock. If this thing gives us the number, I'm going to Punch it in, 1 to 99. If this thing gives us the number 75 again, I'm going to throw the Google machine out the window and use dice or something. Or I guess I could just 
click the button again. So here we go. Randomized Googler. 79. 79. <laughs> this does not seem that random. We had 75, and then we had 75 again, and then we had 78. I'm a little suspicious. I'm just going to try again. One. Is this random? It seems so unrandom to me. But okay, fine. Let's look at number one, which is in the section idiosyncrasies and is called the hapless benefactor. Number two, I see, peeking ahead, is Kafka cheats on his exams, which is intriguing. But we shall stick to this weirdo random number generator and check out Number one. So while you're enjoying whatever we have for you at the break, I will be furiously reading about the hapless benefactor and will report back after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. Thank heavens and the gods of randomness for this one, because number one is pretty fantastic. The Hapless Benefactor. This is what I wanted from this book. Kafka, Kafka, Kafka. This is pretty fun. Okay, so it involves a story that Kafka told, and then we'll hear the story, and then we'll get some context for it. So in a letter, Kafka, he might have been making this up, as we'll see, but Kafka told this wonderful little story to the to Milena, the second great love of his life. He said that when he was a boy, he had a ten kreuzer coin, and he was eager to give it to a beggar woman who sat near the old town square. But as he was on his way to give it to her, he began to realize that it was an extravagant donation, ten kreuzers, maybe too much for her to accept which made him feel ashamed that he was going to put her in that position. He didn't want to make her feel bad, so, but he did want to give her the money. So he changed the coin into 10 one-kreuzer coins, and he gave her one, and then he ran around the square, and then he gave her another one, a second one, and then ran around the square again, 
and so on. By the end, he said, she was edging away from him. But he was determined, and finally, he was exhausted physically and morally, and so he went home and saw his mother and cried, and his mother gave him another ten Kreuzer coin. It's a poignant little story. And then he adds, because this is, after all, a love letter, he says, quote, You see, I have had, my, I have had bad luck with beggars. And yet I hereby declare that I am prepared to slowly pay out my entire present and future fortune in the smallest Viennese banknotes to a beggar woman there by the opera house on the condition that you are standing beside me and I may feel you near me. End quote. Okay, there we go. If that's all we had, this letter, we'd have something very imaginative and romantic, a perfect little anecdote. He's telling something that's not too flattering about himself, and but it's kind of cute. And then a grand statement to his beloved, one that is not at all a cliche. I, I would give away my fortune as long as you're next to me. A little sappy, perhaps, but who among us hasn't been a little sappy? At least at least he didn't write it in verse. Not that there's anything, anything wrong with that. See, see, for example... Romeo's first conversation with Juliet, where the two of them exchange lines in a perfect sonnet. If it works for them, it can work for you. Oh, Moon and Juner, you know you did it, or at least thought about it once upon a time. But here's the thing. We don't have just this story standing alone in a letter. We have the context around it, thanks to Kafka's biographer. And what we learn is that Milena and Kafka had a bit of a history with money and with donations to beggars in particular. Once Kafka, when they were together, once Kafka gave a, a, a two-crown coin to a beggar woman and asked her for a crown back. The woman said she was sorry, but she didn't have any change. And Milena reported that they... They all just stood there for a good two minutes trying to figure out how to resolve the issue before Franz finally realized that he could just let her keep all of it. And then, as soon as he did, as they were walking away, he started acting sullen. And Milena said to Max Brode, Kafka's friend, this is a man who would give me happily, enthusiastically 20,000 crowns. And he's begrudging her two crowns. And so it's not clear that Kafka, writing this letter about this claimed youthful attempt to give this woman ten crowns one at a time, I suspect he might have been inventing a justification for himself. It's possible in my mind that he felt kind of awkward about what had happened with the two crowns and asking for change. And so he made up the story to say, look... Look, it's not that I'm stingy. I just have this this thing in my past, this weird relationship with giving beggar women money, and it comes from a good place. I was ashamed at my own generosity, and look what I did, this kind of slightly foolish thing. Or maybe he was saying I was ashamed at the feeling that my excessive generosity might provoke. Okay, look, I don't really care if Kafka made up the story or not. If he... If he didn't, it shows he was an odd little fellow. And I'm kind of moved by the idea, even as I kind of furrow my brow in puzzlement at what he could possibly have been thinking running around the square like that. 
But if he did make it up, that's fine with me too. It shows what a creative mind does when it's cornered. When it feels awkward. Here he came up with a a nifty little vignette. It's practically a short story in and of itself. The boy who ran around the square until finally the woman edged away from him, not wanting to see him return. In any case, here's what I take from the story. Well, first of all, it reminds me of a time when I was walking down the street in the city with an acquaintance, and we were approached by a man who was clearly down on his luck, who asked us for help getting a bite to eat. And my friend pulled out his wallet, but while he was pulling out a bill, he said, how do I know you're not going to use this on alcohol or drugs? And the man said, F you, buddy, and walked away. My friend was a bit alarmed, but as he put the money back in his pocket, he saw he viewed it as a confirmation that the money was not going for food. Obviously, the man turned it down because he, he didn't want to acknowledge what he was truly using it for. I have no idea if that's right. It's also possible that the man was offended. But it reminded me of Nietzsche saying, hey, you on the street, don't ask me for money. Hit me over the head and take it. I'll respect your strength. You don't have to debase yourself. It's win-win. Why do we have to do this with guilt and shame? Well, thank goodness we don't have a lot of street philosophers reading Nietzsche. I don't want to be hit over the head. But that exchange, asking for money, feeling guilty, feeling ashamed, it's all there. I can identify with Kafka. I want to be the generous person who, who can give away 20,000 crowns to a lover, happy and enthusiastically. Well, I don't have a lover. My wife and I, in fact, share a bank account. But you know what I mean. To give money away to a friend or someone in need without thinking twice. I want to be the man. uh, Certainly, I want to be the man who could give away two crowns to someone hungry on the street and, and who doesn't agonize over not getting some change back. But I also recognize the feeling in Kafka that it's not fun to be coerced into giving. You don't feel the pleasure of generosity. Maybe this is wrong. Maybe this is not the right way to think about being generous, but it's a very human thing, I think. If you feel like you got coerced into something, it feels like you got taken for a ride, and that's not good either. Asking for change is a little ridiculous. I don't know what he was thinking there, just like I don't know what my friend was thinking when he said... How do I know you're not going to use this for drugs and alcohol? But that feeling of, the feeling of, I didn't want to give you two crowns. And then I ended up giving it to you out of guilt, not quite of my own free will. Why did I let myself get pushed into that? It's a feeling that we all feel some of us more strongly than others. Kafka felt that feeling very strongly, as we see from this anecdote and as we see from his fiction. Why did I get pushed, let myself get pushed into a life that I didn't want and where I feel like I'm not myself? Has that happened to you? Maybe you even feel like you woke up trapped inside an insect's body while your family is hammering at the door, wondering why you're not on your way to work. The bug in us doesn't know how to give two crowns to the beggar, while the butterfly 
in us freely gives away 20,000. And the metamorphosis can go in either direction. Let's take a quick break and come back with Edith Wharton's view of you and me. Here we go. Edith Wharton's How to Be a Good Reader advice as presented in her essay, The Vice of Reading, from 1903. She knows what she's doing with that title. She knows that most people will think, Vice of Reading? Don't we view reading as a virtue, full stop, no questions asked? And so people might think, oh great, here's a gatekeeper, brainy Edith, who's going to tell us that reading trash is a vice, not a virtue, and shouldn't these unwashed masses finally grow up and discover the refined pleasures of a George Eliot, a Henry James, perhaps an Edith Wharton herself? Nope. She takes that off the table right away. Go ahead and read trash. She says that's honest enough. It's not pretentious. No harm done. It's trash, but it's not harmful to literature itself. And so I start to get... That's all paraphrasing, by the way. That's not how she writes. And so I start to get a little uncomfortable to shift in my chair a little bit. Okay, so I don't read trash all that much. I like a good magre now and then, but for the most part, I read Melville and Morrison and Baldwin and Boswell and Auden and Austin, Eliot's George and T.S. I'm not reading trash, but am I reading the good stuff wrong? Wrongly. Am I gulp harming literature? Her first target is the sense of duty reader. There's something peculiarly aggressive in the virtuousness of this type of reader, she says. He's accustomed to, quote, the incense of uncritical applause, end quote, for his reading. My goodness, what a great phrase. The reader who's accustomed to the incense of uncritical applause. You can see the pompous ass's nostrils flaring as he breathes in that incense. And I'm narrowing my own nostrils, wondering, fearing that she might be talking about me. Well, I don't know that yet. I have to read more of the essay. I do have a bit of hope that it's not me, because I've tried to be very clear that I don't read out of a sense of duty, and in 400-plus podcast episodes, I do not think I've ever once demanded that anyone read anything. I don't believe in sense of duty reading. There are too many people and too many books and our culture is too broad and grand. If someone brags that they've never read Homer or the Bible or James Joyce or Virginia Woolf, I'm not impressed. I think, well, that's actually kind of too bad for you. If they brag that they haven't read Chekhov, I think you, silly, small, person. Why brag about that? It's like bragging that you don't exercise. Okay, fine. It might be funny as an admission or a statement of fact. It might be winning if you're being humble about it. But if you're bragging and you want my my shocked amazement at your boldness for not reading something, well, you've come to the wrong place. I do not care what you read and what you don't read. I really, truly don't. And I don't think Wharton really does either. I think she cares about how 
one reads and reading out of a sense of duty. Actually, I don't really care how, how you read either. <laughs> but Wharton does, clearly. Reading out of a sense of duty is one example of a poor approach. She says, quote, Reading deliberately undertaken, what may be called volitional reading, is no more reading than erudition is culture. Real reading is reflex action. The born reader reads as unconsciously as he breathes. And to carry the analogy a degree farther, reading is no more a virtue than breathing. End quote. So, no credit just for checking off the boxes. There's not some list that you get through one by one that makes you a better person for having completed it. But here is where I really start to warm to Wharton. Quote, What is reading in the last analysis but an interchange of thought between writer and reader? If the book enters the reader's mind just as it left the writer's, without any of the additions and modifications inevitably produced by contact with a new body of thought, it has been read to no purpose. End quote. That's good. That's in line with my way of thinking, too. Books are like the invisible wires that connect two halves of a battery. You need an author. You need a reader. They need to connect. For there to be any energy, the circuit needs to be complete. A writer who writes a book and puts it on a shelf does nothing. That book needs a reader who will pull it down and engage with it for the magic to happen. But why am I saying this when Edith has already said it and said it better. Here is Wharton. Quote, The value of books is proportionate to what may be called their plasticity, their quality of being all things to all men, of being diversely molded by the impact of fresh forms of thought, where, from one cause or the other, this reciprocal adaptability is lacking, there can be no real intercourse between book and reader. In this sense, it may be said that there is no abstract standard of values in literature. The greatest books ever written are worth to each reader only what he can get out of them. The best books are those from which the best readers have been able to extract the greatest amount of thought of the highest quality. But it is generally from these books that the poor reader gets least. End quote. Okay, so now... She has set out for us two types of reader with a third implied. At least we haven't seen the third type yet. The first type is the, quote, self-confessed devourer of foolish fiction, as she calls him. Basically, that reader is harmless. The second type is what she calls the mechanical reader. And here she says, hey, this is a bad thing. The mechanical reader is a bad thing. The idea we have that reading has a moral quality all of its own, no matter what, that there's something good and instructive and self-improving about reading has pushed readers of light literature towards something more strenuous. She says, quote, these are the persons who make it a rule to read, in quotation marks, rule to read. The desire to keep up is apparently the strongest incentive to this class of readers. They seem to regard literature as a cable car that can be boarded only by running. Okay. Again, I feel like I'm on pretty safe ground here. 
personally, but I do have a vulnerability that I will get to in a moment. Here's why I don't feel too exposed. I'm not someone who feels the need to keep up with the books of the day. I'm not the kind of guy who reads the New York Times book review looking for this week's or this month's new novel that everyone's talking about. I don't read much contemporary fiction at all, really. I find that it, a lot of it doesn't engage me, and I need that engagement for this to work, and that takes about 50 years' time before I can really dig in. Your experience might vary. There are lots of good contemporary novelists and poets and short story writers out there, and feel free to plunge in and engage and if you feel like 50 years time between the publication and your perusal, if you think that means that things have gotten so old and stale that you can no longer relate to it, that's fine with me. I get it. What I do have, though, by my 50-year policy, is a safe harbor from the Wartonian storm thundering against mechanical readers trying to keep up with books of the day. That's not me. Ah, I can hear you say, but that doesn't end things, does it, Jack Wilson? Because you might be trying to keep up with the classics of the day. Old books come in vogue, too. This year, it might be The Wings of the Dove. Next year, it might be Ulysses. And then we're all going to be reading The Magic Mountain. You can scramble to keep up with that, can't you? And isn't that taking you down a bad path where you'd be reading for the wrong reasons? And here again, I say, well... I agree that that's possible, but I don't think I'm guilty of it. Because, dear listener, if you only knew how many times it must be in the hundreds by now, if not the thousands, that I've rejected this very idea proposed to me by friends and well-wishers and everyone under the sun, it seems. They'll say, ah, there's a new series about Zelda Fitzgerald on Netmax Prime. Surely, Jack Wilson, you will want to run an episode on Zelda Fitzgerald to coincide with this release. Or they'll say, here we go. This is Sir Walter Wrighthead's 150th death anniversary year. Time for an episode, surely, Jack Wilson, on Sir Walter White Wrighthead. And I think, well, why should it be? Maybe I've had my fill of Sir Walter Wrighthead at the moment. Maybe this is my year to read Lady Literature Stocking instead. It's up to me and what I am planning to read. Not the calendar, not the publicity machine at the streaming service. If anything, I feel less inclined to do an episode on those topics because people are already bored by the onslaught. With 99 zigs, hopefully there's room for one zag. I do make exceptions for guests. I like talking to people who like literature. If they've just come out with an account of the secret love poems that Sir Walter Wrighthead wrote to Lady Literature Stocking, I will be all ears. My show will be theirs for an hour. But I said this type of reader, the scrambler to keep up with what's relevant, does present a vulnerability and it's this. I began this whole podcast with the idea that literature might be dying. And my exhibits A through Z were the lack of cultural relevance that novelists and poets have in our world today. I grew up at the tail end where writers were much more powerful when novelists like Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal 
might appear at public readings and on discussion panels as their equivalents would do today, showing up for whatever the C-SPAN was back in the 60s and 70s. But, but these guys would also be on Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show. They'd be, they ran for office. They were known and their books were read. It mattered to people that Saul Bellow was writing novels. They thought he had something to say, something to deliver to them, a message that they should read through the form of fiction. They would buy those books and read them. And here's Wharton suggesting that maybe they were doing that, but maybe they were doing it wrong and maybe they were harming literature by doing so. Here she is again, quote, The mechanical reader considers it his duty to read every book that is talked about, a duty rendered less onerous by the fact that he can judge beforehand from the material dimensions of each book how much space it will take up in his head. There is no need to allow for expansion. To the mechanical reader, books once read are not like growing things that strike root and intertwine branches, but like fossils, ticketed and put away in the drawers of a geologist's cabinet, or rather, like prisoners condemned to lifelong solitary confinement. In such a mind, the books never talk to each other. End quote. Is this me? Am I part of this? Are these the people I was revering all that time? The people I was lamenting who lived no more and I wanted to, to, to reinvigorate it? I hope not. Is it you? I'll assume it's not. But is it the group of people I've been missing? Is it possible that all these people, my grandparents' generation, were reading books to keep up? Books sent to them by clubs, books that were reviewed in their newspapers, books that librarians and bookstore owners urged on them. Is it possible that they were doing this just to file away the books like fossils being put away in the drawers of the geologist's cabinet? With all the thought of someone who does 20 minutes on the elliptical machine at the gym and then another 20 on the rowing machine to help work the abs. Here's Wharton. Quote, It is only natural that the reader who looks on reading as a moral obligation should confound moral and intellectual judgments. Here is a book that everyone is talking about. The number of its editions is an almost unanswerable proof of its merit. But to the mechanical reader, it is cryptic, and he takes refuge in disapproval. He admits the cleverness, of course, but one of the characters is not nice. Ergo, the book is not nice. He is surprised that you should have cared to read it. The mechanical reader, after a few such experiments, learns the potency of disapproval as a critical weapon, and it soon becomes his chief defense against the irritating demand to admire what he cannot understand. Sometimes his disapprobation is tempered by philosophic concessions to human laxity, as in the case of the lady who could not approve of Balzac's novels, but was of course willing to admit that they were written in the most beautiful French. A fine instance of this temperate disapproval is furnished by Mrs. Barbold's verdict upon the ancient mariner. She pronounced it improbable. Okay, 
end quote. That's funny. <laughs> but is it harmful? Where's the harm? Well, let's hear what Wharton says. She says, The obligation of expressing an opinion on every book which is being talked about has led to the reprehensible but natural habit of borrowing opinions. Anyone who frequents a group of mechanical readers soon becomes accustomed to their socialistic use of certain formulas and to the rapid process of erosion and distortion undergone by much borrowed opinions. End quote. You can see what's tearing Wharton apart here. She says this is, this is the immense majority of book consumers. They're flooding the zone with these ideas. Other readers might want to engage with a book, but they're discouraged from doing so because the mechanical readers don't go into the, into the book wanting to expand, but just wanting to cross the book off their list and maybe cross it off everyone's list with a pithy remark. If someone else came up with the pithy remark and you can just repeat it, that's even better. One less thing for the mechanical reader to worry about. Wharton says there are four sources of harm done by a mechanical reader. First, mediocre reading facilitates the careers of mediocre writing. You make good writers dumb, you make them write dumb things, and you make dumb writers rich. Number two, by trying to make abstruse and difficult subjects boiled down into some pithy phrase, you retard true culture and lessen the possible amount of really abiding work. Third, mechanical readers often confuse moral and intellectual judgments. This is the reader who says, I didn't like Madame Bovary. That woman was a hussy. Well, maybe the book is asking you to consider why you think that, not trying to sneak one past you. Or, worse yet, offer up someone for you to disapprove of and dismiss as if it were an accident, a mistake. And then you throw the book out with the bathwater. Fourth, mechanical readers have produced mechanical critics. Here Wharton refers to critics who think, it's not my job to say if something is good or bad, or to say if I was moved by a book or what my response was to it. My job is to tell readers what's in a book and keep my opinions to myself. And Wharton says, well, who needs an inventory of what's inside books? Who needs a cataloging of what's in novels? Only someone who plans to read mechanically, counting the pages, listing the authors and titles, checking the boxes, filing the fossils away in the drawers. Wharton is clearly kind of conflicted about whether criticism is necessary or worthwhile, but she's saying if there is going to be criticism, it can't be this kind of criticism. It has to be something that engages with the work. As she says, quote, the born reader may or may not wish to hear what the critics have to say of a book, but if he cares for any criticism, he wants the only kind worthy of the name, an analysis of subject and manner. He who has no time for such criticism will certainly spare none to the summing up of the contents of a book, an inventory of its incidents, ending up with the conventional, but we will not spoil the reader's enjoyment by revealing, etc. It is the mechanical reader who demands such inventories and calls them criticisms, and it is because the mechanical reader is in the majority that the mechanical plot extractor is fast superseding the critic. Whether real criticism be of service to literature or not, it is clear 
that this pseudo-reviewing is harmful, since it places books of very different qualities on the same dead level of mediocrity by ignoring their true purport and substance. End quote. There we go, dear listeners. Does Wharton hate us? Ah, well, I'd like to think that we're engaged in something hmm, a little more personal, a little more creative than a cataloging of author born year A, died year B, wrote books C through Z. And they are, the books are about the following. I'd like to think we're rising above the dead level of mediocrity. I'd like to think we aren't ignoring the true purport and substance significance of these books. Does Edith Wharton hate you? I doubt it, dear listeners, based on your emails to me. I don't detect these problems in you. I read them and think, these are people who are reading books the right way. They're moved. Their lives are changed. They're reading them with love in their hearts and tears in their eyes. Smiles on their faces. Does she hate me? Well, I actually think my reading, based on her essay, is okay. But does, to answer the question, does Edith Wharton hate me? Well, yes, she probably does. But not for this. Okay, there we go. Well, what does she hate me for then? Ah, well, here a cataloging an inventory of the reasons why Edith Wharton would hate me is probably appropriate, but I'm not going to be the one to put such a list together. My thanks to Edith Wharton for her story, Shingu, and her essay, The Vice of Reading, which was a good little combo to have as we kick off this new year of reading and talking about reading. Next week on our calendar is a translator of Kafka Diaries and maybe a scholar of W.H. Auden. We'll see two great guests, so please do subscribe so you don't miss out. A mechanical listener, well, I don't want you to be one of those, but a mechanical subscriber and a mechanical five-star ratings lever, well, free Feel free to go into bot mode for those, my dear friends. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you.